0: Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise, and this is a bonus episode to follow up with my interview with Blake Horseman. We're keeping it in the family today because we are welcoming Shelly, also kind of my bonus mom, but Blake's actual mom to the podcast. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Elise. It's good to see you. It's good to see you, too. (laughs) It's been a while. The purpose of having Blake on last week was because I think, unfortunately, as a country, we've become so desensitized to these events. We see gun violence, we see mass shootings, mm-hmm. we see school shootings constantly on the news. I know that you listen to the podcast and I believe it was like 386 since Columbine, which is just a crazy number, but I think when we're watching this as not spectators but as, you know, people consuming news channels, it's hard to remember when you are desensitized to it that these are individuals families and entire communities that are never going to be the same after they're touched by this kind of tragedy. So I wanted to take it beyond just a blurb. And that's why I wanted Blake to share his personal story and how his life and the community of Bailey was altered afterwards. But then we got a lot of feedback, including from my co-host who is on maternity leave and is a new mother. And she was like, how the heck could a mama bear? be in that school with two children in there and you obviously had a job to do but your number one job as I know you to be is a mom absolutely We've gone through the facts of what happened that day but can you share from your perspective mm-hmm. how that day unfolded and the emotions of that day?
1: um yes so um like Blake said on the podcast um, I was the one that made the code white call so initially I went into work mode Mm -hmm. because that was my job. Um, Principal told me to do it. I did it. Then I went into mom mode and immediately where were both of my kids at this time? It happened during a lunch hour. That's actually how he got into the building because kids were in passing and he just kind of walked through the building with them. So I immediately went, are my kids in the cafeteria? Like, where are my kids? That part was really hard for me because I didn't I didn't know where they were. I had to physically look up their schedule to see where they were in the building. When I found out that my daughter was actually in the other building in a PE class, I was relieved Mm -hmm. because I knew it was happening upstairs in our building. And then when I saw that Blake was in the PCTV is what we call that class, I knew what that meant. He could be anywhere in the building, which he was. They kind of roamed the building a lot, taking interviews and pictures and that kind of thing. and so. That really scared me. And the only thing I knew was the classroom that it was in. I had a pretty good idea that Blake would not have been in that. It was an upper level English class. So I knew there wouldn't really be a reason unless he was interviewing somebody right. in the class or the teacher. And that was a relief. But until I physically saw both of my kids, I was running on fumes. Like I, I didn't know what to do until I could physically see him. I couldn't leave my office basically, because we run a lockdown. So I couldn't go find my kids anywhere. So until I could physically see them, and like Blake said in the podcast, it was hours before they evacuated the building into the other building, and we actually came all together. I had to go find my daughter. They had put the PE class into the boys' locker room.
0: So they locked down the other building as well,
1: where she was at. Yes, we locked down both buildings, mm-hmm. exactly. And then once, once we could locate, you
0: know, and SWAT did their
1: thing, and it was isolated to one classroom. Then that was when everybody came into the other building. Yeah, it was an emotional moment when I finally got to see my kids.
0: When tragedy like this strikes, there's so many working parts, right? And everyone has different knowledge of what's going on and is privy to different things. SWAT team knows one thing. Police know one thing. Ambulance knows one thing. Right. And then administrators at the school know something. How much of this were you aware during the fact, like during it happening, how much did you know of what was going on?
1: I knew quite a bit what was going on. What triggered the Code White announcement was a girl, and I'll never forget her face, came running to the front office and she said, he's got a gun. He has fired a gun. And so I knew at that point that it was definitely a gun and it was definitely a male. And I knew where he was because of the classroom that she was in. And all of those kids that he kicked out of the room Mm -hmm. came um, running down to the main office. We gathered them all into the main office when we locked down. I knew that. I knew the kids that were in the classroom. I knew how many there were. I knew all of that from being in the main office.
0: And just as a reminder to listeners who maybe didn't listen to the podcast and the interview with Blake yet, that first gunshot was not necessarily aimed at anyone. It was almost like a do what I say warning shot. Mostly because the boys refused to leave the classroom.
1: So he made a point that, I'm not kidding. Right. And shot the gun, mm-hmm. and then
0: they all left. Mm-hmm. As, they, as they should have. Including the teacher. Um, she didn't want to go either. Well, I imagine not. But it was a warning sign. Of what was to come. Yeah. And, and obviously, like, this is a tragedy in and of itself that one life was lost, but had they not made that decision and riled him up anymore, who knows what could have happened. So they definitely made the right choice in leaving, even though I cannot fathom how hard it was, especially as a teacher, to leave students behind. Yes. And as a female, Mm -hmm. to leave females behind, if I'm being totally honest. Oh, yeah. I'm not a mom. I have a puppy and a cat, but that's about the extent of it. But I'm lucky enough (laughs) (laughs) to have a really great mom and have my long-distance moms, as I call them, like yourself. Mm-hmm. But I just can't, I can't fathom what it would be like to know that you can't run and protect your babies. And,
1: you know, I will say that I've seen a lot of these school shootings and the media pans the parking lots and, or, or wherever, you know, the wherever people are meeting up. Mm-hmm. And I think I was on the other end of it. I was in the building. I was with my kids. I wasn't one of those parents waiting miles away to join with their children. I can't imagine that feeling. I at least got to see my kids after a couple of hours. When we reunited up at our elementary school, which, like Blake said, is about 15 minutes away, those people had waited there for five or six hours.
0: And I can't imagine that feeling. And they didn't have the knowledge you had of what room, what classroom? No, they did not. I, th- I think sometimes the news, um, I understand it, but I think they overstep because that is, mm-hmm. like you said, panning over these parents that have no idea where their children are or if their children are alive. And and we're talking lately, it seems like it's been happening at elementary schools a lot more. And those aren't kids that are sending texts to their parents or I'm OK or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess I don't know. Maybe, yep. maybe six-year-olds have phones these days. I'm not sure. It just feels like such an overstep to capture people without necessarily their consent in, in what must be the scariest moment of their life, period, as parents until yes. they are reunited.
1: Yeah. It is. It's, I can't explain it.
0: <laughs> well, and I hopefully will never understand it, but it just seems like it's becoming all too common that a lot of people share this story, which is why we wanted to talk about it. I did notice when talking with Blake that he really seemed to find a lot of comfort in the aftermath by talking it through with you guys as a family. So as mom, what would be your advice to parents whose children have or may unfortunately experience something like this?
1: I think the biggest thing is, is to let them talk, to let them be angry, let them be sad. Don't try and solve it because you can't solve it. Mm -hmm. And I know as a parent, you always want to, solve everything for your kids and make it all better. And you can't. You pretty much have to be that person that listens. Um, We kind of had a unique situation also because I was involved also. And so we were all talking. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just my kids telling their parents. It was telling me as another, I say, victim because we're all victims in this situation.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Because we have been traumatized. And so I just think that's the biggest thing is to let them talk and don't try and fix it. Be a good listener.
0: I think that that's a really important point is sometimes it's hard not to project your own feelings onto other people. And I would suspect Mm -hmm. as a parent even more so because you want to play the fix it role and wrap everything up in a bow for your kids and make the world safe again. And they've unfortunately been shocked overnight with that there's a lot of evil in this world, unfortunately, and there's a lot of hurt people in this world that are willing to hurt others in response to their own pain. So I think it's an important note that sometimes the best advice is just maybe find, as a parent, some therapy for yourself and how to deal with it, but also Mm -hmm. just the patience of just walk alongside someone while they go through these emotions and grief in whatever form it comes in, comes in waves. And it comes in a lot of different emotions, not just sadness. There's a lot of, like you said, anger. Exactly. There's a lot of survivor's guilt, Mm -hmm. depending on the situation Yep. and the question of why. And why is a question that none of us can ever answer. So I think that's a really important note is just to be available to listen. But I also would want to encourage that if parents are in a position, where they're like, I don't know how to deal with this, that even if they don't feel like they Mm were like you were personally in the building or affected by it so directly, Mm -hmm. that's still they deserve to have therapy to figure out how to move forward as a family, dealing with children that are going through something that they might not understand or have experienced in their lifetime.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I actually did that. I know Blake had mentioned that we had a lot of counseling going on here within the district. And that was at all locations, even our elementary school who was 15 minutes away, but they still had the impact of all of everybody showing up at their building. Um, But I chose also to get some counseling outside of the school district. Um, for that exact reason, because I needed to be a parent also, not just a victim. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I went to months of therapy um, outside of the district, paid for it out of my own pocket because I knew that was the only way I was going to be able to help my kids.
0: Speaking of therapy and mental health, that's something that we advocate very, very heavily on this podcast is that everyone should get the mental health they need in whatever capacity that is. But let's talk about how this affects not just the days and months, but going forward in your life. You have Mm -hmm. to not only survive this experience, be reunited with your kids, Mm -hmm. but this was your job. So you have to return to this building. Yes. This building that caused all of these pains to begin with. So can you talk about what that experience was like coming back and then touch on how you've taken care of your mental health in the months and years following this?
1: Yes. When it happened, um, there was a lot of, um, well, we were out of school for, like Blake said, a week or two. And I think it was more like two weeks. And our homecoming game did get postponed. So there was a lot of emotion around that where there were parts of us that felt like we needed to come together. That we needed to get the kids back in the building. We needed to be with them. We are in a, um, a rural community where a lot of families commute to Denver to work. And so we had a lot of kids, older kids, that were home by themselves all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a lot of them. I mean, probably, I would say probably 80% of our parents will probably be commuting up and down the mountain at that point in time. Sure. Not so much anymore, but they did back then. Um, and so lots of kids, middle school kids, high school kids left alone. So we tried to get that building open, gathered back together. I was the principal secretary at the time. And so I made daily announcements every day. And the very first day back, I got on the intercom to make the announcements. And later that day, my principal came up to me and he said, I hope you understand this, but I don't think I'm gonna let you on that intercom for the rest of the year. You're causing a lot of triggers when people heard my voice on the intercom, which I totally understood. Something I didn't think about, obviously, something he didn't think about at the time either. But yeah, so another lady in the office had to make the announcements for a very long time.
0: I didn't even think about that.
1: Yeah, it was very triggering to a lot of people. I'm sure to my kids in general, probably. But a few people had come to the principal during the day and said, uh, probably not a good idea. So and I was fine with that. You know, that was the other thing was there's a lot of things until you go through it that you don't think about. And that was that was really hard that there were some kids in the building, like they would come in and you can just see it in their face. Or when they would go up and have to walk by that classroom, you could just see it, that there was terror in their face. But, you know, bless their hearts, they all stuck it out. And they all I mean, they all came to school every day. We finished the school year, you know, because this happened in the fall. We had a whole entire school year to complete. Um, And we did. And it was a process, though, for everyone. Um, At the time, I was also um, the cheerleading coach. I had, I don't know, 12 or 13 girls on my squad. And let me tell you, that was a tough, tough year. A lot of emotion all year long with my cheerleaders. That they actually, at the end of the year, they bought me this blanket. It's a picture of all of them. And it says, thanks for sticking with us. Mm. Because there were so many times that i just felt like okay i just need to be a counselor that i'm not trained to do mm-hmm. because they needed that it wasn't about cheerleading anymore it was about our team and and how we're going to get through this so there were many different aspects of it not just what happened but the entire school year and that classroom was closed for i want to say 5 years it was until everybody that had been in the school which I believe also included our eighth grade because our eighth graders, like Blake said, were in a pod in the high school. Mm -hmm. They're actually, that's their classrooms. Um, And so it was closed for five years. So it wasn't a trigger to those kids. Um, And then they finally opened it back up.
0: I definitely understand not having it open. And at the same time, it's like this, I think the best analogy in my head, and I don't know if this is a good analogy for it, but it's like that ghost ship that's there, you know, of that room being there. and yep. And no Mm -hmm. one's in it, but you know Mm -hmm. what transpired there. So I definitely understand them wanting to keep that closed um, Mm -hmm. until everyone had moved on. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, talking to you about this, my brain's going of like all the little things that would, like you said, that you don't think about that would trigger those memories of that Mm -hmm. day. And in so many little aspects, your voice on an intercom walking past that room. Every day. Yeah. And Emily, Emily was also um,
1: on the volleyball team. My daughter was on that volleyball team too. And so that was, again, it was during their season, those practices, those games with not having her there. And, you know, those are triggers that you have that you you don't think about until it happens. Mm-hmm. And they're all at volleyball practice and there's somebody missing. Yeah, there are a lot of things. And so every year, um, just to let you know, every year after that, I shouldn't say every year, but for a very long time, I want to say probably 10 years mm-hmm. on the anniversary, we would do um, a day. At our school, that's called Kindness Day because Emily was such a kind person. And so it was called Kindness Day. And on that day, we didn't have school. Everybody came to school, but we didn't have school. And we would go out and do things in our community for kindness. We'd go to restaurants and help them clean up. I know that there were some picnic tables that one of our classes made for some of the restaurants in town. And there were just, it's just Kindness Day. We did it for 10 years on that anniversary because we didn't want to forget, but we needed to do something positive. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did in our community. And then after about, I think it was about 10 years, so maybe 11 years later, it was, it was like, okay, it's time to move on. You don't forget it, but it's time to make that day more of a normal day at the school anyway. And so we did that and that's how we are now. That day just
0: comes and goes. I think it's pretty incredible. You know, We talked about the I Love You Guys Foundation. And then hearing what you guys as a community have continued on. I don't know how well you knew Emily, but Blake and I got pretty emotional, so I didn't want to go into it too much. But we always want to keep things victim-focused on this podcast. So you said Emily was very kind, but is there any other little memories you can share about who Emily was? And just so people got an idea of that she was not just a victim of shooting but she had a whole life
1: oh she did she would light up a room i mean literally she was kind to everybody everybody loved emily she was a she was just what and you know it's hard in high school (laughs) yeah she was one of those kids that everybody liked and everybody liked her and she was i think she was a junior that year and so i knew her for three years and she like i said she was just a very very kind person she was a twin she had a brother that was a twin. He was not in the building at the time. He was actually on a field trip, but I knew him as well. And they were both very, very kind, loving children. Um, kudos to Ellen and Mike Keyes because they, they raised two beautiful children. And to go on to see what they have done in the I Love You Guys Foundation is incredible to me. After knowing what they went through, losing a child but being able to make something so positive come out of it is, it's just incredible to me. They're very wonderful people. After it happened, there was, and I don't remember long after it happened, but there was something that was called Emily's Ride. And um, it started at Columbine High School. And it was motorcyclists from all over the state that rode from Columbine High School to Platte Canyon High School. And I mean, it would go for miles and miles and miles of motorcyclists. It was incredible. And they did this for years on the anniversary, for years. It was um, very touching.
0: When I was doing the research for the podcast, I read about those motorcycle rides. And there was a really cool note in the article, and I can definitely link it if people want to read it. But they said that when the first motorcycle, this is how many there were, got from Columbine to Platte Canyon, The last one hadn't even left Columbine yet because there were so many people that showed up, which is incredible.
1: Yeah, because it's it's about a 40, 45 minute ride in a car. So, yeah, it's a ways. It's
0: about 35 miles. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. To end this, I asked Blake, but I also want to ask you. It can often feel so helpless for those of us that are just watching these stories on the news. Or maybe you're even in a community that is impacted by this, where you've talked about it a bit, but just to put it all together, what do you remember being the most help to you and the community in the days that followed?
1: I think people just reaching out, being in the office of the school, we had every single day people would mail us gifts. And I'm when I say gifts, I mean posters from little kids, that drawings cards that kids had made would come in boxes and boxes to the school. So I think it is. It's just knowing that we aren't alone in those situations, that so many other people can relate to you. I think that's what I would highly recommend, is that you just need to reach out. I know Blake has done that to several victims of these shootings around the country. And it really, it touches people. Because you you don't know what they're going through unless you've been through it yourself. And so I think just reaching out, letting people know that you're here to talk to, that if you need anything, just to offer those, those helping hands to people, I think, more than anything, because it is um, a terrifying situation that you will always remember. You'll never forget it.
0: Shelley, thank you for joining us today. I, as you know, off this podcast and on. I appreciate you so much. I thank you for being vulnerable. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share it and coming on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Lise. As always, remember to follow our podcast on Instagram and TikTok at a case of the Sunday Scaries. And do us a favor, share your favorite episode with a friend. It truly helps our podcast grow. I hope you will all join me for an all-new case coming this Sunday, but as always, until then.